0: Hello, and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Neil Seaman, founder, chief executive officer, chief privacy officer, and chairman of Riwi. He leads overall company strategy and Riwi's work in global public health security. On this episode, Neil talks about data in the information ecosystem, COVID issues in regards to mental health and vaccines, and quiet voices to understand current issues. Neil also discusses global macro trends to data, buy-side private equity and corporate uses, spicy chicken, and future data growth. Please enjoy this dialogue between Neil and your host, Emmett
1: Kilduff.
2: Neil, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Emmett. It's a pleasure to be here in Toronto. Thank you.
2: How did you get into sentiment and predictive analytics?
1: It was really in the mid-90s when I was falling into alt news groups uh, during the primitive days of AOL. Don't know if you remember that, where there were all sorts of quirky chat rooms for Dungeons and Dragons players, people who wanted to understand about sort of sensitive topics, sensitive or quirky topics rather. And I really started to learn that people would talk a lot about their intimate feelings on these uh, chat rooms. Uh, They would share lessons learned about chronic illness in particular, uh, mental illness in particular. Men who wouldn't typically talk in a clinical setting would talk a lot about their particular conditions. And that really gave me this forward insight that I've learned today that quiet voices online, if you can tap into them, you can gather information that's otherwise unavailable.
2: And so did that lead you to take a data or analytics type course in in high school or college?
1: So no, not exactly. I was self-taught really in this rarefied area of the internet, which is the architecture of the internet, the web address bar. And my self-education was after law school and in public health. And as an investor, primarily in the early days of the web in multi-messaging technology voice over ip and what was health 1.0 then became health 2.0 and i started to learn about the different applications of the web address far beyond domain name advertising or ad tech
2: very good so let's move to you know using data profiting from data the name of the podcast how can you give me what you think is the best example of, of how to use data that you've seen
1: So, do you mean in finance or?
2: uh, It can be outside of finance, it can be any use case. Yeah, be quite broad.
1: Thank you. Well, I would say more broadly in the current uh, information ecosystem where people are in their echo chambers on social media and often not talking to each other. What we find the best application of data is to understand what the vast majority of people are thinking feeling observing in any part of the world and these are people who don't typically answer surveys they don't typically post their opinions on social media or on blogs and when you hear from these quiet voices you can understand what consumers what investors in China may be thinking what people in a turbulent areas of the world may be thinking about the first mile, second mile, last mile of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is terribly valuable to really understanding different subsectors and different applications of nascent technologies.
2: Does it have value for understanding mental health, which I guess COVID is having a big impact on people's lives at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, the web more broadly has always been very exciting for me in terms of understanding emergent problems in in mental health. I mean, with respect to COVID, we know that the next wave of the challenge, let's just say, is going to involve these structural unmet needs for people with mental health, whether it's in the United States or Ireland or China at different stages of their own epidemic, there's going to be a great deal of unmet need. We're working with universities and media across North America to, for example, understand the state of mental health challenges on campuses across North America. This is really important to understanding the prevalence of different mental health challenges and how to address them Mid COVID and post COVID,
2: and how does data specifically with that example? How does data help?
1: So, what we need to know: prevalence data, especially of uh, uh, highly sensitive issues. Highly, so people don't know, in fact, what the, the prevalence of PTSD is among college students. We we associate things like PTSD with a small minority of the population and then there's a wide variety of other conditions. And we need to uh, understand how to improve access uh, and care for whether it's the elderly population, younger population, so they they have less stigma and access to healthcare that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And then secondarily, we need to invest in the system and allocate resources where we most need them. And we need to sometimes learn from these audiences as to what the very low-cost, high-return investments may be to move the dial on mental health.
2: And is Riwi, your company, doing a lot of work in this area? Yeah, so Riwi started in the field of
1: global public health during H1N1, which was a, a pandemic understanding where in the world people had concerns about Public health authority didn't invest trust in public health authority. We've done a lot of similar work during different outbreaks around the world. And now in this context of COVID, looking around the world, we have a global pandemic data initiative. We're working with universities. We're working with for-profit clients in many countries around the world, understanding the challenges that different countries and institutions have at different phases of their own epidemic. This is very important for finance in particular because you need to know what subsectors are going to change, what elements, for example, of digital health are going to be sustained over the long term or elder care, how that's going to change, what the unmet needs and demands are of different population groups that are not being heard from whether in the United States, Canada, around the world, and and how different companies are better or worse positioned to deal with those unmet needs.
2: That's interesting. So for-profit clients, if we dig into some examples of how they work with you, what sort of use cases do you want to give to the audience about how hedge funds or asset managers use your, your offering?
1: Thank you. I mean, for financial market participants on the buy side, there certainly are a large number of pairs trading analyses for consumer-facing equities that one can look at. There's a lot of US equities that depend on the Chinese consumer. For example, we we did some work understanding the real market share of, of Luckin versus Starbucks, and we found some predictive work there that was very important. iPhone uptake and transition globally is very important. It, understanding which Equities within the EV marketplace are going to surge gaming as these trend, especially around Thanksgiving and up to Christmas, which sorts of pairs trades will be more valuable. However, Emmett, what we're finding now is increasingly since 2019 and and certainly now increasingly, it's global macro that the buy side is paying a great deal of of attention to. So although equity-specific research is important global macro trends, understanding really whether the Chinese, the the true health of the Chinese economy, uh, whether the Chinese young people are turning inward, for example, so they're no longer invested in wanting to come to America for, come to America or take part in virtual education in America for higher education, which used to be an export to China, but we feel no longer will be. So these larger macro issues are of increasing salience to our asset management clients.
2: And you've mentioned China a few times already on the podcast. How do you get a good insight into China? Because clearly, it's notorious. Are a lot of people you know, don't trust data that comes out of China. How do you give trustworthy, actionable insights?
1: Well, we deploy our patented technology. It's now referred to as random domain intercept technology, which I originally invented for a pandemic surveillance. And this is when all across China, all across any region of interest where we deploy, you get a mirror of the web using population who stumble upon a vacant, lapsed domain or a subdomain associated with that non-commercially hacked domain when you're surfing on a, a blog or when you're directly typing into the web address bar on a phone or on a tablet or any other type of device. So you're intercepted randomly and you're invited to participate. And then in China specifically, or any restrictive environment, we're dynamically rotating this universe of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of domains that reflect the internet using population so that any monitored environment may seek to shut down one or two of our domains but they can't shut us down unless they shut the entire internet down.
2: And just to give a sense of the scale how many websites or domains are you tracking across the world and then maybe by the US, Europe and
1: China? Yeah I mean our access is Statistically, um, extraordinarily large, and and ebbs and flows depending on on client demand. So the number of domains, tens of millions in terms of numbers, but that's less important than ensuring that they're a reflection of the internet-using population. So to give you a sense of scale. Really, we stopped counting around 1.6 billion in terms of interviewees who have given us some response data of value, whether that's a continuous survey that we're deploying about Brexit or about the U.S. election or a binary event or whether it's about an image test where people may be evaluating an image Hmm. or a video to determine whether or not it's effective. And so we do this sorts of work with uh, government agencies around the world to really understand the effectiveness of videos that may try to confront
2: violent terrorism, for example, or local Hmm. gang activity. You mentioned global macro. Clearly, the U.S. election is uh, on top of everyone's minds. Is your data giving interesting insights into that at the moment? Yes, definitely. So we sort of stumbled
1: into elections work largely out of demand in 2016, where we successfully predicted the election of President Trump. And we are now engaged with a number of financial institutions that that have real-time tracking into our data as well as weekly reports. We are finding that just generally speaking, the national polls do not reflect a wider audience of Americans who do not uh, typically answer surveys and are increasingly uh, sensitive to the intrusion of non-anonymous respondents. So this is, people talk about the shy Trump voters, we talk about the undetected Trump voters and the changing Trump coalition, right? And so the challenge for legacy polling techniques is they tend to talk to the same people all the time, and they can talk to people who know that their answers are not anonymous. So we assure people, as we intercept them on a regular basis, these daily random samples across all regions of, of America, that they are anonymous. And we, of course, do all sorts of validity testing in order to predict both the battlegrounds, the Senate seats, which we deem to be battlegrounds, and of course, the national level outcome.
2: Well, any idea what percentage of Americans would sort of rather prefer be silent as opposed to signing up to a survey where they'd actually have to give their name?
1: I mean, in 2016, our work in the U.S. election was a very small scale. And we had 1.1 million Americans being reweed and 47,000 Americans provide their forecast about the U.S. election, which was then then we calculated that at an electoral college level. So that gives you some sense of uh, willingness to respond. Now, of course, we're at a much larger scale in this election because uh, we're much more uh, engaged in it. Now, response rates and uptake of engagement really varies for Riwi in different countries of interest for different reasons. So in parts of the Middle East or Africa, we find engagement, very, very high, sometimes 20, 30, 40% on the full questionnaire instrument without any incentives whatsoever, in large part because people feel they haven't been given a voice to participate, haven't been given a voice to express concern about local violence, local turbulence that may, in fact, affect investment decisions as well.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And can you say anything about the US election any predictions?
1: Well, I'm sensitive to the fact that we're engaged with clients now. What I can say is that it's going to be a lot closer than people think. And there's certain battleground states that people think are close, but let's just say the president
2: is appropriately confident about one or two. Interesting. Very good. So moving on to private equity, do you have private equity clients? How are they working and profiting from your data?
1: Private equity is really interesting. So private equity firms, just generally speaking, tend to make a smaller number of bets right throughout the course of any year, and they tend to be short duration bets. so to give you an example, in the current climate, there's a lot of debate around the future of long-term care facilities. You know, in Canada, we had a national tragedy in our long-term care in terms of just the mortality associated with the pandemic. And so people want to know, for example, what's the future of long-term care facilities? And there's equities associated with that in different markets around the world. What sorts of feature sets of these new future-looking long-term the long-term care, elder care facilities will be important. So how does that equities basket look in the short term and the long term? These are the sorts of bets that private equity needs to make. Now, there's also a lot of nascent emergent technologies that people are often making assumptions will be really large in scale, but we just we really don't know. So this is where you need to get access through rewe to the quiet voices, people who are not necessarily writing expert reports that feed into the expert Gartner reports and, and others. You need to get so sometimes combine the expert opinion or the strongly held opinion that you may get on social media and then wrap it together with the what I call the or many call the real wisdom of the real online crowds which is rewe. And sometimes you'll find that those signals are collinear. Sometimes you'll find that they're divergent. And it gives you some, in many cases, if you're in private equity, a stronger validation or weaker validation over your investment thesis.
2: And can you move quickly, you know, we do a lot of work with private equity, particularly during due diligence phases, and you know they need everything done yesterday or within one, two, three days max, as opposed to what can be a lengthy onboarding cycle of taking on a full data set. Typically, if they're looking at a target, they will just want the data about that about that target and its competitors as opposed to the entire data set. Are you set up to move quickly and serve the P firms in that sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're set on rapid response for many of our clients, whether they're in the security sector, we work with the non-confidential work with the U.S. State Department and many other large institutions, the World Bank and others, on sort of rapid response initiatives. So we like to have sort of long retainer structures So because often an investment firm simply doesn't know what their interest may be during that due diligence period. So we, we deploy immediately, instantaneously, on the subject matter of interest and the geography of interest. And again, so we, we may provide them a large volume of data but it may just be a subset of that data that they may be particularly interested mm-hmm. in at that moment in time.
2: So you mentioned government use cases or government you know, for security or the World Bank. What type of use cases are, are, can you tell us, the audience? Thank you. I mean, we are working with one central bank right now. We're working with financial
1: institutions, large financial institutions. We've worked with the International Development Bank, World Bank. And the great interest there is in high-frequency economic indicators, right? So not lagging indicators about unemployment, about the purchaser's manufacturing index and how that will reveal itself. So we like to front-run official economic indicators, non-farm payrolls, these types of data streams, and this is what we're increasingly involved in, jobs precarity data, jobs relayoffs data. What is the true state of the U.S. economy? What is the resilience of the U.S. consumer, the Canadian consumer, the Chinese consumer? These are the sorts of high-frequency indicators that are really important in the current marketplace where just things are happening so quickly that our high, high frequency economic data stream is of increasing importance to policy decision makers.
2: And I assume going back a little bit, that would also be of interest to quant funds?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, so what you're doing is you want to take, sometimes you want to take our historic data sets and so, or sometimes you want to start a fresh, and deploy with a new query string, again, to validate or, in some cases, question your hypothesis going forward about what the consumer in any particular area of the world may react to or may not react to.
2: Yeah. And then corporates. Personally, I'm incredibly excited about the corporate market using a lot more data Typically, they start with internal data and now the innovative ones are looking to bring external data to complement the internal data and make better decision making. Do you work with corporates? Uh, Can you give some examples, please?
1: Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, as you alluded to, there's sort of big data internal to the corporation which may yield a particular insight into a trend that you may want to validate externally. So we're finding a lot of trends and demands among corporates. One of them relates to ESG in particular, so, so there are certain themes around environmental social governance issues and how they may resonate with the brand public relations challenges. So Originally, you could use, or in the early days of clean social media, you could use social media signals to understand whether a corporate's brand was suffering in the wake of a perceived crisis. But nowadays, we have blog storms all the, all the time about product, services, and goods. So what you need to do is you need to test that brand using re signals to determine if the wide universe of people is concerned about that brand versus what the noisy social media signal may say about that particular brand. Corporates also need to explore emerging economies, right, and sort of transitioning into those emerging economies and how the population may react to that. Sometimes they have an ethic of care. So, for example, mining companies or extractives organizations that we work with, sometimes they need to understand how the local population's in South America, in Africa, where there may be mining and development issues sort of taking place, they may need to understand how those populations are going to be affected or how they're going to perceive mining operations. And again, that can have a knock-on effect into associated equities.
2: Yeah, very good. I've heard you mention the phrase spicy chicken before. Can you explain that to the audience?
1: You know, it's funny. I, I actually learned that at an event in New York City, a Kwan event. Uh, Jamie Lee. She is uh, dynamic equities lead at Panagora in Boston, and she used that phrase, and it resonated with me because it spoke to the limits of natural language processing, where you're looking at a phrase like "spicy chicken," okay, in Mandarin, and how that's used on blogs, and you may, as a human, interpret that information in a biased way to suggest that. And Spicy Chicken, in that instance that she used as an example, in fact, indicated that what they really felt about a particular equity was negative and not positive. And so this is just a generic challenge that we have within big data analytics. So what we do is we move around that problem and uh, we focus on asking people questions to determine foundational truth and observations to get the widest possible spread of individuals, as opposed to making very human-driven, biased assumptions about what that language may mean.
2: Mm-hmm. Very good. I've also seen that you've written uh, a lot about data privacy. What are your thoughts there? Are Should we be worried about data privacy? How do you see it going?
1: Uh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, we, we are obsessed with data privacy in the, the largest way. I mean, we do not collect any personally identifiable information at source, and we've feel that that's a huge quality advantage because increasingly people are sensitive about what they put out online. And so the integrity of our data is very important and associated with that. So it's a competitive advantage in that regard. But more fundamentally, we're sort of distracted, I think, a little bit and and taking our eyes off, off the real concerns around privacy When we deploy, when we put out personal information online, it can potentially, of course, put critical infrastructure at risk from nefarious actors who may leverage that personal information to attack the enterprise. At the same time, I think we are overly sensitive to, say, certain other issues like micro-targeted ads, for example yes, they're problematic, you're you're giving up your own data. Mm. I think there's this sort of conception that these micro-targeted ads are benefiting big corporates more than they in fact actually are, but that's mm. a much larger discussion.
2: Mm. Well, let's go back to COVID for a second. What are the critical data gaps that could be tracked reliably that could help solve the crisis? What are those gaps and how would you go about tracking those?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many. First, uh, some of the work we're engaged in now, which is real continuous random sampling of all populations in the world to really understand symptomatology, to understand their perceptions, concerns about the vaccine, because again, worried about that last mile problem, whether or not people are actually going to be receptive to the vaccine, concerns around vaccine hesitancy, which we're doing in many, many countries around the world. This is a huge data gap that we're trying to address. The caregiver burden associated with COVID 19. This is an area that governments and policymakers and private corporations are going to need to attend to because people are being frayed, caregivers are being frayed and overwhelmed. So that's another area. And then perhaps the biggest area for all countries and organizations to better understand is how different individuals and subpopulations in different parts of the world are succeeding or failing with respect to their own experience of the pandemic in their own countries and the many epidemics that are breaking out. Because we can learn a lot from other countries. I think one of the greatest lessons thus far of this pandemic is the resistance to learn from other countries. We need to understand why, for example, some public health authorities in different countries are held in greater esteem what they do in order to bolster confidence in the population so these are the sorts of data gaps that we do and attend to but a lot more needs to be done
2: okay and then looking ahead do, neil do you have any predictions in the data space in, in terms of new eras of big data or what are your thoughts Yeah, I mean, I I have a wide range of interests where it comes to
1: big data. I think I'm interested in voice data, for example, even the conversation that we're having now, the tonality of the data. As you know, this conversation we're having is being transcribed, and I think a lot of interesting analytics could be derived from that. So the world has done a lot in health and finance, looking at visual data and written data. But the tonality of voice, I think, is going to be exceptionally interesting. Larger trends involve the combination of data sets in healthcare. This is called data linkage. And again, that's going to be extremely powerful. I see there being a lot of excitement around the usage of tools uh, like Rewi proprietary data sets being mashed up with publicly available data sets, whether it's census data, weather data, other trends data. So these are the trends I see that are very exciting. And then there's also what I call data humility, understanding that simply the largesse of your data set is not necessarily what drives alpha right? Sometimes you need actually small amounts of data or a small number of data streams to actually be predictive of alpha. So that's why I think there's a merge of both qualitative and quantitative to drive decision-making.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think big data is a terrible term. Small data can be incredibly valuable. Or frankly, just data could be incredibly valuable if one knows how to extract insights from it. It doesn't have to be big. Excellent. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. And maybe next year, we'll get you back on and we can talk about some more of these global macro trends and the results of some of your predictions.
1: Brilliant. Well, Emmett, thank you very much. Keep well, keep safe. And I really enjoyed this opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you.
0: That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.